Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, but there is something we can do about it. This fall, more than a quarter of a million people are participating in the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Out of the Darkness Community Walks, raising awareness and funds for research, education, advocacy, and support programs. Held in hundreds of cities across the country, the Out of the Darkness Walks let people know that they are not alone. Gives them courage to open up about their own struggles or loss in an environment of hope and healing. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has set a bold goal to reduce the suicide rate 20% by 2025, and they cannot do it without your support. Be a part of the movement that's helping create a culture that's smart about mental health. And remember, suicide prevention starts with everyday heroes like you. Find a walk near you and register for free at outofthedarkness.org. Again, that's outofthedarkness.org. Together, we can stop suicide. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, all the usual whatevers. Uh, support those that support us. We appreciate you being here. Check out the contact list at drdrew.com. That opium series, I think you'll be, uh, and also the cancer series, the things you ought to check out. And if you get on the contact list, we send you that stuff automatically. And uh, if you ever wondered how we got in this mess, we chronicle that for you there. You can read all about it. But right now, I am uh, very excited to welcome Massimo. And Massimo, I've got a, 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 a big ignorance on the last name. So here it goes. Pilucci? Did I get it? Yeah, that's, that's close enough. Pilucci. <laughs> Pilucci. Yeah. And, and, I, and I want you to know that I am a huge fan of yours. I, I uh, am sort of one of these guys that, that troll through podcasting, and I've found you in all your Con- all your incarnations, most um, to boast on the stoicism front and the uh, success literature, all, all that stuff you've been doing, and all the skepticism about uh, parapsychology and pseudosciences. I've, I've found you all over the place, and I asked to, to book you, and I really am privileged that you'll come on the show. So thank you for being here. It, it's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> so let me give you your particulars. Uh, a book is How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life, and that's that's sort of what Massimo is famous for, is the, the Stoicism. We'll get into some of that. He's a professor of philosophy at uh, City College uh, New York, right? Uh, yes, you, correct. And yep. you were an evolutionary biologist at Stony Brook at one point, too. So you've sort of gone from evolutionary yep. biology into philosophy, which is what fascinates the hell out of me. <laughs> yes, it was an interesting journey. <laughs> so, and you can follow him at M, and here's the last name spelling, P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. Uh, also, the website is platofootnote.org. Um, let me just uh, just start with you. What, what What's on your mind these days? What's occupying you? Uh, I'm about to finish two books, um, and which, which are actually due uh, in like a few weeks, uh, which is an unusual thing for me. One is actually a, um, a book that I'm co-authoring with a friend of mine, Greg Lopez, and it's a book of um, exercises uh, in stoicism. So it's, it's just practical. It's a practical workbook. It's written pretty much like a cognitive behavioral therapy uh, book. So it's, uh, it's something that you start reading and practicing and taking notes and things like that. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun to put it together, and it's almost done. The other one is a collaboration with a number of authors. It's an anthology, uh, which I'm putting together with my friends and colleagues, uh, Sky Cleary and Dan Kaufman. Both of them are philosophers. And the book is tentatively called Philosophies of Life, and basically what it is, is each chapter is written by an author who is uh, often, but not always, a professional philosopher, but more importantly, somebody who is living, has been living a particular kind of philosophy. Uh, and so we present the reader with a 
you know, 14 different ways of uh, living your life philosophically, basically, from Buddhism to Stoicism, from existentialism to secular humanism, uh, passing through Taoism and Confucianism and Christianity and so on and so forth. And it's been incredible, uh, you know, a lot of fun to, to put it together. And and to be fair, uh, that's really what philosophy one of the, one of the designs of philosophy was how to live the good life. Yes, philosophy originated that way, right? Both in the East and the West. I mean, the, you know, the early Eastern philosophies are things like Buddhism, which was definitely, uh, you know, started out as a very practical uh, approach to life, uh, and then you know, eventually it also included. Uh, scholarship and, and you know, investigations of a little bit more of a esoteric type, such as studies in logic or studies in metaphysics. But mostly, what it started out it, it was was practical ethics, and the same goes for the Western tradition in the Greek and Roman worlds. The, uh, it is true that the pre-Socratic philosophers uh, were interested in what we would today call science as well as metaphysics, but pretty much from Socrates on. Uh, the emphasis has been uh, uh, on, you know, how do you live your life? In fact, that's the meaning of the word ethics. Ethics comes from the Greek, from a Greek word that basically means, uh, you know, character and, and living socially. So it's the, the study of ethics in particular and the study of philosophy more broadly uh, started out as a question of, you know, how, do, how are we supposed to be living this life? What are we, what are we doing here and, and, and how do we... Uh, managed to to navigate it in the best possible way. My friend, uh, I think you've run across Ryan Holiday, another sort of yes. popularized Stoicism, and and Stoicism or Stoic philosophy was interestingly sort of a cognitive construct, almost like CBT in, in its little kind of way. And I think that's why you're sort of setting up the book that way, right? Because Stoicism really was how to use your thinking to overcome adverse emotional states or adverse states of living. Correct. In, among the Western philosophies, uh, Stoicism was arguably the most practically oriented. Uh, and in fact, it's not, by co- it's not a coincidence that uh, some of the cognitive behavioral, you know, cognitive type therapies that started evol- evolving in the 1950s and 60s, such as CBT, but also rational emotive behavioral therapy and a few others, uh, were actually directly inspired by uh, stoic, uh, the Stoic authors. I didn't realize. Early... I, I did not realize yeah, they were yeah. actually inspired by that. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, some of the early uh, writers in CBT and REBT were actually directly reading and and sort of trying to update uh, Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. Are you still doing the Rationally Speaking podcast? No, the Rationally Speaking podcast is uh, keeps going, but it's my friend Julia Galef who um, was the. Uh, co-host with me for the first, uh, I think, 130-something episodes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I heard you yeah. there, and then you disappeared. I was wondering if you are going to keep doing them. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I want to get into a little bit of a conversation about uh, meaning and happiness, but but before I do, I have sort of a weirdly technical question I think you, I've heard you spoke, speak about before, and I want to just pick your brain out a little bit. Uh, so whether Mark Aurelius and his sort of pensées was a truly a philosophical um, – treatment, let's say. It was really just his thoughts for living and this extraordinary, he wrote down some notes, you know, here's this great leader, wrote down notes for living that had a stoic tone to them. And people argue that I guess there's no sort of cohesive philosophy within it. I think you would say otherwise, wouldn't you? Yeah, yes. And I I think I'm not the only one. There is a really nice book that came out uh, two or three years ago by... um 
William Stevens, I think, is the name of the author. And the title of the book is uh, Marcus Aurelius, A Guide for the Perplexed. And, (laughs) yeah, which is a great title. And uh, and, um, the other makes an interesting uh, analysis, you know, builds an interesting analysis of Marcus. So, on the one hand, yes, it is true that the meditations were his personal diary. In fact, originally they were not called the meditations. They probably didn't have a title at all. When they emerged uh, a little later on in, late, in the late Roman history and early medieval history, uh, they were referred to as uh, uh, to himself. The, yeah. title, the, the, the title that was given to them was huh. to himself. They, would beca- they became known as the meditations only much later. So it is, it, it is the case that uh, it, it, this is not a treatise on stoicism. Uh, this is not an exposition of Stoic philosophy. It is uh, redundant. I mean, you can see that he goes over the same themes over and over, and it is a little bit preachy. But the reason for that, but, but is he's preaching. But he's preaching. Diary. He's preaching to himself, though. Exactly, he's preaching to himself, and the reason he's redundant is probably because he was making similar mistakes over time, and he went back and said, "Oh, damn it, I did it again." So, so let me remind myself of why I shouldn't do these kind of things. Right. That said. It's beautifully written. Uh, the original is in Greek, which was kind of interesting because, of course, Marcus was Roman, uh, huh. and so you would expect it to uh, have him written in Latin, but Greek was the, uh, the, the tongue of the elite, basically, and hmm. so especially the literary, uh, the literary lingo. So he wrote it in Greek. It's beautifully written. Uh, there are some really excellent uh, translations, even, even recently. One of my uh, favorite is probably the one by Robin Hart that came out a few years ago for Oxford Classics. And interestingly, the book that I mentioned a little earlier, um, A Guide for the Perplexed, actually uh, reconstructs some of the arguments uh, in the meditations and shows some of the philosophical arguments and shows that actually Marcus was a fairly savvy philosopher in his own right. I mean, he was not a philosopher in the sense that he didn't write for the public and he didn't teach, obviously. He was busy doing, you know, being the emperor. (laughs) But he had studied with some of the best philosophers in Rome, and in particular some of the best Stoic philosophers. So it's very clear that the book is, in fact, mostly about about Stoicism. It's largely informed by Stoicism. But he also makes, again, to himself, some interesting arguments that um, uh, you know have been reconstructed, and and they they really look like good, you know, solid philosophical arguments. So the guy knew what he was doing. Is there one that stood out for you? One argument. Um. Oh gosh, there is a number of them. Uh, for instance, he does um, um, he, he, he reconstructs the, the st- one of the standard historic arguments for why we should care for each other, essentially. Yeah. And the argument goes something like this: um, It's like, look, we're all part of the, we're, we're part of the same cosmos. We're literally bits and pieces of the cosmos. Uh, the cosmos, according to the Stoics, was a living organism, essentially, which was endowed with rationality. Uh, that, that's what they called the logos. Mm. Now, in modern terms, we don't think of it that way. Obviously, we, we think of the universe as whatever fundamental physics says the universe is. Uh, but it is still true, of course, that the universe is, in fact, organized according to rational principles. I mean, otherwise, science itself would be impossible. Uh, so Marcus says, look... You are part of this gigantic thing, the cosmos, and a very important part of this, uh, as far as you're concerned, is the cosmopolis, the human cosmopolis, you know, the, the, human, the human race as such. Um, we are, have a natural tendency to be cooperative and to care about other people. Sounds like Adam Smith. And therefore, That's the Adam Smith theory of moral sentiments, right? 
Correct. In fact, Adam Smith, not, uh, not coincidentally, was influenced by the Stoics. I didn't and so see. was his friend David Hume. Um, Hume right. was? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh. Um, even though Hume was more sympathetic for the, uh, toward the skeptics, as you yeah. might imagine, yeah. uh, he wrote a beautiful essay on Stoicism where he, he comes across as, as really sympathetic to the philosophy. Um, so it, one, one of the interesting things about Stoicism is that although officially, so to speak, the, the Stoic philosophy sort of ended, Stoic schools ended with the second or beginning of the third century, and they did not reemerge until the 20th century, in fact, there is a significant sort of thread among major figures, especially major philosophers, both during the Middle Ages and then uh, the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment, of people that were influenced by by, by stoicism, so uh, so you you see these things popping up all over. It's you know as you mentioned Adam Smith and David Hume, Baruch Spinoza, uh, Kant was influenced by the Stoics. I mean, there's lots of well, and I, of course a lot of the Christian writers. I I really think in a weird way Sartre is sort of a bizarre distortion of of stoicism. If you think about the Ep- Epictetus and the way he yep. You know, overcome. You know, everything is what you create, essentially, or you're. You know, you 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 make everything in your life. And Sartre sort of took that position and then did weird things with it. <laughs> right, he went in a very different direction. Yeah. That's right. So let me let me finish the argument with with Marcus. I guess I, I don't want to yeah, leave it just la- hanging in the lim- in limbo. So the idea was so so we're part of these thing. We have uh, of this big community. We have a natural tendency to commun to to uh, cooperate with other people and to care about other people. Uh, it stands to reason, therefore, that we extend that natural tendency. You know, we have a tendency to care for people that we actually know, people that are around us, our caretakers uh, uh, when we're little, and then eventually you know, our friends, our extended family, and, and, and then the people who live in the same city. But Marcus says, yeah, but we, we all live in this much larger city, the human cosmopolis, which is part of this gigantic thing, thing called the cosmos, so it stands to reason that you basically keep enlarging, keep, keep expanding the uh, sphere of your concern, and outside of what just happens to be uh, your concerns in terms of, uh, you know, hap- of accidents of history or your personal history, to gradually more and more people, because after all, reason tells you that those people are exactly like you are. Mm. They're endowed by the, with the same characteristics. They care about the same things. They they feel in the same way, and so there is really no reason for you uh, to treat them differently. That is a, the fundamental idea, stoic idea of cosmopolitanism, which for the time was way in advance of you know of uh, most other people's thinking. I, I this isn't really where I really wanted to go in this conversation, but it, it, it I can't resist. Uh, because it it, it 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 is something I just it sort of have I ask a question really, which is it what you were the logic you were just going down in the uh, the human what you call the cosmopolis the, the human yeah. the human system here the human experience. One of the things that always mystifies me about altruism and conversations about the biological basis for altruism and perhaps that. You know, the selfish gene is interested in saving the you know genetic endowment of the close kin. I don't understand why altruism can't extend to men, humans generally. I mean, when you really think about the evolutionary biology of every species, it's about keeping this. There, there's a there's a keeping the species going altruism as well as keeping your specific genetic genetic lineage altruism going. And no one ever seems to pay any mind to that. The fact that a species as such 
is interested in putting the genetics of that species forward. And so when people jump off the bridge to into the freezing water to save the kid that's not related to them, to me that makes perfect sense from a species standpoint. Of course, if it's their child, it makes extra easy. It's easy to make sense of that. Right. Um, right. But no one seems to make any mind to the, the species perpetuating itself. Am I wrong there? Well, there is, there is a reason for that. So um, I think that what you're talking about is the borderlines, the very interesting borderlines between uh, biological evolution and cultural evolution. So biologically speaking, uh, we are supposed to care, of course, for our close relatives because they carry our genes or, you know, a significant number of copies of our genes. Um, and you can argue by, um, by arguments based on, on something called group selection that we should care about other members of our own group uh, even if we're only distantly related to them or not related at all, simply because our survival depends and, and our thriving depends on members of our group. So it's, it's sort of looking out for one another increases the survivability correct. of the individual, yeah. Correct. But the size of that group tends to be pretty small. In fact, for most of human history, uh, the size of the in-group, uh, so to speak, was between, uh, it's been estimated to between 60 and 120 people or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's not a lot, yeah. right? Now, uh, evolution has also apparently uh, endowed us with a natural tendency for xenophobia. And tribalism. Um, and Yes, tribalism. The reason being that likely, I mean, you know, nobody knows for sure, but likely what happened was that, uh, you know, if somebody that didn't look like you were coming into your group, more likely than not, this, this person was trouble. Mm-hmm. And so being, being skeptical, being, you know, even hostile, to people that were coming from outside the group was probably adaptive. So what that has meant throughout a lot of you know, human history is that we had a, a fairly powerful biological instinct to cooperate in group, but not with other groups. Now, that started changing, I think, or arguably, um, after, the, of course, the invention of, uh, of the evolution of language and especially the invention of agriculture when groups started getting larger and larger, right? So now we don't have any more uh, 60 to 120 people, most of whom are related to each other anyway, but now we're going to begin to see villages and then cities and eventually city-states and then eventually nations. Now you're talking about a large number of people with whom it makes increasing sense to cooperate because you are interrelated, but you don't have any interrelated in terms of uh, interdependence, in, you know, economically, uh, in terms of goods and, and, and so on, and, so forth, and even defense. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that instinct biologically. We don't have an instinct to cooperate biologically with people that are on the other side of the world or even at the other side of our, of our, of our city because we don't know them, because we're not related to them, because we didn't grow up with them. So there is where the cultural evolution kicks in. Uh, and cultural evolution, one of the things that cultural evolution has done through, of course, the, the invention of language is the appearance at some point very early on uh, in history of what we today call philosophy. And as we mentioned earlier, philosophy started out, by and large, across the globe as a way to inquire not only in how the world works, you know, that would be metaphysics and eventually science, but how do we work with each other? So the first uh, ethical precepts, the first rules of conduct, and so on and so forth, came out once that human beings started living in groups that were large enough that you really had to ask yourself the question, you know, why should I be you know, friendly or cooperative to people that I don't know and they're not my relatives? And there is an answer there, but you have to arrive at that answer, and that answer has to be uh, 
uh, you know, entrenched culturally. Otherwise, it gets lost. Otherwise, we revert to, to, to tribalism. And of course, you can see that particular uh, sort of tension between biological tribalism and, uh, you know, reason, reason-based sort of expansion of, the, of, the, of, of our concerns even today. Right. Yeah, and, and I would argue, as our, you know, I, I do believe that uh, the predominant kind of personality, tone, style, traits, whatever you, however you want to characterize it, of a of a given population, determine more or less the expression of these kinds of primitive instincts. Um, and I, it's so funny when I first started working in a psychiatric hospital in the early '80s. You know, there's a category called, uh, you know, in, in, there's a category you fill out the diagnostic uh, sort of spectrum on a patient called personality disorders. You know, it's, it's axis two, it's called. And when I first got yep. there, we saw all kinds of axes, all kinds of different things going on. And by the time, but late 90s kicked in, it was exclusively cluster B, which is the narcissistic, you know, borderline sociopath, th- those narcissistic really? sort of. And now it's exclusively that. That's every, everybody has got traits that way. And I, I, wow. and I wrote a book about this about 15 years ago. And in that book, I wanted to put a chapter about scapegoating and about tribalism. And, and I, the only period of history that I could find that I was familiar with even marginally that was similar was pre-revolutionary France. A lot of childhood trauma hmm. then, a lot of narcissism, a lot of – I mean, all, you know, was four out of five kids died in you know, infancy because they were just left at the doorsteps of these, these – I mean, Rousseau left five kids on the doorstep of, a, of an orphanage, and he, who knows if they yep. survived or not, and then kept his concubine sort of like enslaved to him in, in the background. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, this is, this is the man that uh, people look to for the – you know the the kindly native theory. The, what do they call it? The uh, yeah, yeah. This yeah, guy was Rousseau a, was not a, not a nice guy. Oh, horrible um, guy. You, the, horrible a, human. Yeah, there is an interesting book that came out a number of years ago about these uh, uh, spats that he had with David Hume. Well, and, and then uh, he had with uh, then he had with uh, Voltaire. And I will tell you something. Something yeah. no one's ever written about. He was run over by a carriage and had a terrible head injury. And it was after huh. that that his paranoia got really bad. And I think he had some sort of traumatic brain injury, but no one ever picks huh? that up. But his, his stuff was... <laughs> That's interesting. Right? His, his, his things, he was always cantankerous and difficult, but after that head injury, he, he became severely paranoid towards Voltaire and the, and the Philosophs, particularly. You know yeah. that, that yeah, history, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and David Hume actually tried to help him, and he got him out of France uh, after, you know, he, he was, uh, after Rousseau was uh, fearing for his life. He was and crazy. So he was very, you know, he was totally he was insane. Friendly. But yeah, then, then he turned against Hume as well. Right. Again, paranoia. You know, he thought that Hume was trying to underli- undermine him yeah. and, you know, betray him and all that. Yeah, it was yeah. a TBI. <laughs> it was some poorly characterized yeah. psychotic state he was in, you know, sort of amplified. Anyway, but the, po- the point was that, that back in that period, the, the, um, the scapegoating, the mob action, the scapegoating, the guillotines, I thought we were, gonna, we were headed towards something like that. And that's what I think we're seeing now in social media. I think that's exactly what that is. Yeah, I was going to say social media certainly is not helping, but with the with the narcissism stuff, is it? Well, I think it's where the mob gratifies its narcissistic impulse uh, through destruction yeah. of others. Uh, it's all scapegoating mechanisms. Yeah. 
I want to welcome True Niagen to the show. True Niagen is a dietary supplement designed to boost key cellular resource called NAD, or nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And there's a lot of research on this today. I've been watching it for a while, and I became intrigued. Now, the science is, is preliminary, but studies are showing some very promising results. Promising enough that it's got me taking it. It's thought to maybe improve how we age. It's thought to improve how our muscles function. And what's exciting about this is the research indicates that it also may potentially help with cellular metabolism, regulation of circadian rhythms, and even hopeful, as I said, slow the effects of aging. Now, early studies, the science out there is impressive, but this is, again, just in the early stages of development, but the biohacking community has really gotten behind the research. I've been intrigued by the possibility of surrounding NAD and the research behind True Niagen. I suggest you check out their website for yourself. And you and I had the chance to speak with the company's chief scientific advisor, Dr. Charles Brenner, right on my podcast. And it was a fascinating and enlightening discussion that piqued my interest in all the possible applications for a product like this. Definitely check out that episode for yourself. You'll see. To learn more about the research, science, and the True Niagen supplements, visit TrueNiagen.com. That is T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com. All right, our friends at TrueCar, of course. They don't want to confuse you with all that terminology that, uh, you know, none of us really understand. MSRP, right? What does it stand for? Invoice, list price, dealer price. It confuses us, and it's probably designed to do so, I imagine. But mm -mm. what you want is the true price. And now you get true price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you're going to pay for the car you want, including fees and accessory, before you even get to that dealership. And True Car dealers show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. And how do you know your true price is a great price? Well, True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want, right? You get to study a scattergram, so you see the range of prices paid in your area, so you know you lock in a, a good price. But that, of course, that price is the true price, and the true price is set competitively by these True Car certified dealers so they can win your business. You will be happy with the true price. So when you're ready to buy new or used, don't forget, True Car has used as well as new cars. Visit True Car and you will enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Hey, I want to tell you about Purple, Purple Mattress. This is an amazing new product. It's probably different than anything you felt before because it uses a brand new material that was developed by a rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam you're used to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling just amazingly comfortable. It's breathable, so it sleeps cool. And it ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel. We just had a couple friend of ours sleep on our Purple Mattress, and they raved about it, and they were angry because they paid a lot more for another brand, and it's not as comfortable. They've got a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. But uh, listen, once you try this, you're not going back, I promise. It's backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, free returns, free in-home setup, and old mattress removal if you wish. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That, in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide, just go to purple.com. That's right, just like the purple color. Purple.com. Use my promo code DREW at checkout. That's purple.com. Code DREW. It is the only way to get that free pillow. Use the code DREW at checkout. Purple.com. Code DREW. If you like this show, you need to check out the Perez Hilton podcast. Each week, Perez is joined by Chris Booker to bring you the best gossip from and around Hollywood. What's hot, what's not, and what everyone is talking about. You never know where the show will end up, so check out the Perez Hilton Show weekly on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Um, all right, here's what I, I want to get into a little bit more on on meaning and happiness. And now I'm finally seeing people in the more common discourse 
take this issue up in in uh, in a more sophisticated fashion. Uh, there's there's tons of books out there about how to be happy and steps to happiness. And when I started seeing that literature come out, I thought to myself, they don't even know what they're talking about. They, they don't even know what they're measuring when they say happy. Are they talking about euphoria? Are they talking about hedonic happiness? And then finally, the notion of eudaimonic happiness entered the sort of discourse. And I'm seeing people now talk about meaning, uh, making meaning out of life, contributing something bigger than themselves, being of service, this kind of stuff that I think anyone that has looked at well-being and good life comes to that conclusion that that's a necessary piece. But – I think Aristotle had that from the beginning. Aristotle spelled that out very clearly as what is necessary for eudaimonia. He talked about the very purpose of human existence being eudaimonia. And he added two things that I'm not hearing people talk about that I think is a critical piece, which is uh, techne. Yeah, he, he felt you had to have some sort of skill to be able to contribute and make meaning. And, phron- and phronesis, that you had to have some sort of wisdom and I thought, yeah, right. that's true. To really make a difference, you have to have some training and wisdom and ability to really do that one-on-one kind of meaning-making or difference-making for humans. And yet no one's picking that up really in the discourse I've heard lately. Or am I wrong? You tell me. Uh, no, I think you're right. Um, uh, hopefully not yet, meaning that, you know, as, as, you, as you mentioned, um, uh, this kind of discourse got to eudaimonia very recently. I mean, in fact... It's interesting to me that uh, in psychology, particularly the, the people that do what is called you know, positive psychology, uh, now they, they actually stop talking about happiness in sort of these vague sense. Of, yeah. Happiness is very difficult to quantify. It's very difficult to define. It's, you know, it, it brings up completely different kinds of... of oh, listen, when, Massimo, when the, the reason I knew that literature was bullshit from the beginning, I thought to myself, oh, well, no one's happier than my heroin addicts when they get their first hit. They are happy, and, exactly. they're, euphor- and they're euphoric. Are they happy exactly. in some sense that we want to you know, follow in their, in their footsteps? Or, or is this right. a good well, life? Well, of course well, not. Of course right. not. So, so it's interesting to me that uh, the psychologists themselves basically gave up on, on using sort of modern English terms, and they actually are using the word eudaimonia. Yeah. So they're using the Greek word. Yeah. Uh, now, here's the interesting thing, however. So you mentioned Aristotle, but in fact, all of the um, post-Socratic uh, in, into the Hellenistic schools of philosophy used the word eudaimonia, and they gave it different meanings or different interpretations. In fact, what you can, you can almost come up with a uh, classification of all the major schools uh, of ancient Greece and Rome, uh, including, of course, Aristot- Aristotelians, Platonists, uh, Stoics, Epicureans, and so on and so forth, uh, you can classify them according to how they actually saw eudaimonia. Interesting. So you just talked about the version that Aristotle gave. Uh, and uh, he well, even, he, even he gave two, two versions. His was the, yeah. contem- the contemplative life and the life of service. Well, which, which is it? He, he right. was a little unclear. Right. It could be one or the other, actually. So but Aristotle did agree that there is more than one way. You know, it's not just one recipe. Of course, he thought that the contemplative life life and the life of excellence in, in, uh, in the mind, in questions of the mind, was the, the best you could possibly um, do. Not surprisingly, since he was a philosopher. Right. But he did agree that there are different ways of cashing that out. But if you ask Epicurus, for instance, you would say, look, um, the, the eudaimonic life is a, is a life of virtue, so you have to be a good person, uh, essentially. You know, virtue meaning, not, not in the Christian sense of the term, but 
in the sense of having a good character and a character that has moral excellence. Uh, and you got to stay away from pain. You know, Epicureans are famous for as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of, of people of philosophy, right? Yeah. Um, but that's not really what they were after. They were actually mostly after avoidance of pain, right. especially mental pain. Right. Uh, if, you ask, if you ask the Stoics, uh, the Stoics would say, look, a eudaimonic life is a life of, uh, that is, that is uh, sort of organized around the four fundamental virtues, and those are the one that you mentioned earlier, Phronesis, uh, you know, practical wisdom, and then courage, justice, and temperance. Uh, everything else is secondary. Yes, you're, you, um, other things being equal, it's fine if you go after you know, wealth or education or love or whatever it is, but all those things have to come secondary to your moral uh, nature because you don't want to trade any of those things, basically, for immoral acts. If you get pleasure immorally, then you've just ruined your life. Your, mm-hmm. your eudaimonia has gone down the drain, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. That was the idea. Um, so those, and those were just the three major ones, but there were a number of others. So it's interesting to me that uh, modern psychology is finally catching up uh, with this stuff. As you said earlier, a little bit partially still. But there was an interesting study that came out a few years ago um, where uh, a number of, of psychologists looked into the cross-cultural uh, conception of virtue. And they found uh, a number of interesting things. First of all, every literate society that they looked at, so every society capable of writing uh, that they looked at, has a concept of virtue. Not only that, but this concept of virtue is not random. Even though different cultures have a different number of virtues that they recognize and they valued them in a different way, there are six that appear to be near universal. Mm. And these six include the four Stoic ones that I already told you. Um, you know, practical wisdom, courage, mm-hmm. justice, and, and temperance. Wait, wait, and wait. Then, pra- 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 practical wisdom, justice, temperance, and what else? Courage. Courage. Huh. Yeah. And so these are pretty much universal. The other two universal are, are referred to as transcendence and humanity. Transcendence is this idea that pretty much every culture has, that there is something that is bigger than us. Yeah. This may or may not be a god. It doesn't have to be cashed out as a, as a god. Um, but this, you know, we're part of something bigger, and we derive meaning by being part of something bigger, whatever that something is. Um, and then the, the sixth one is humanity, meaning that every culture has this recognition that pretty much all human beings are, in fact, human beings. We're members of the same species. We have, as we were saying earlier, the same, you know, the same feelings, the same passions, the same uh, interests, and so on and so forth. So these six appear to be pretty near universal mm. across, across cultures. And you find them in all of the eudaimonic uh, schools in ancient Greece. And can we make a point from that? Well, the point is, uh, it, it's, a good idea to study those philosophies, either the ancient Greek ones or Buddhism or Taoism, you know, any of those that actually is uh, built along those um, those lines, because they apparently hit very early on on something that is a integral part of how we make meaning out of life. So, if you want a meaningful life, it probably is a good idea to take a look and perhaps even better practice, one of these philosophies, as you know, in my case, it's been Stoicism, but that's, that's just one possible alternative. Pretty much all of these major philosophies or religions have hit on the same basic 
set of human values and human needs, and uh, there is a reason for that. And and so, uh, if somebody's looking for uh, a little bit more of an understanding of his or her own life and how to live it, that's this is probably a good starting well, point. Well, it's it's really interesting to me because when you think about mental health professionals, all those there's a different parsing out and deconstructing of helping the patient, to, uh, which we say integrate as a whole. Once they sort of help with that process, then it becomes these other elements, you know, getting in touch with yeah. being of service to the people, getting something bigger than yourself, uh, letting go of control, all, all this stuff. Courage is not one yep. that occurs to me naturally, interestingly. It's the one that sort of uh, makes me think. I, I wonder if we all mean the same thing, if they meant the same thing that we mean by courage. Uh, but may, or maybe uh, we're just mi- and maybe we're just missing it. Maybe we just maybe that's something we need to yeah. sort of pay more attention to now. Yeah, well, maybe it is. Uh, what what uh, the meaning, especially for the ancient Greeks, of the word courage in a, in a sort of philosophical sense was not the obvious thing that one might think of. You know, we're not talking about the courage of rushing into battle, mm. uh, although that's often what people think about, or, or you know, generally to put yourself at risk. Uh, it's really more a it has a intrinsic moral component, so it's really moral courage. It's the courage to stand up and do the right thing. Um, it, it, al- it almost for, it almost for, sounds more like fortitude or something, right? Yeah, yes, you, yeah. Can, you can use that term as well. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, and speaking yeah. of terms, so how do you translate uh, eudaimonia now? I think we had it wrong as happiness. I know people are using flourishing a lot now as the as the sort of the best we can do. What, you know, what do you do? A, that's a good question. I've given a lot of thought of, of it. I'm okay with flourishing, although it's, you know, obviously flourishing means different things to different people. Yeah. Um, uh, and which is fine because, they, you know, you do want some flexibility in, in, the, in the concept. I mean, you don't want to say that everybody has to live exactly the same life. That would be boring and clearly not particularly useful. Yeah. So a little bit of flexibility in the concept is fine. My preferred way of thinking about eudaimonia is that eudaimonia refers to the life that is worth living, meaning when you get to the end of it and you look back, you say, yeah, that was, that was worth it. That was well done. That was, that was something that I'm, that I'm you know, happy about, that I'm, right. that I'm proud well, that, that's of. That's back I'm to... At least that I'm not ashamed of. Back, well, that's back to meaning, and, you know, making meaning or, or having a meaningful life, and that's you know the a subset of having a good life, right? Yes, exactly. So imagine somebody who is a complete hedonist, for instance, right? You, you mentioned earlier, you know, if you want to just have pleasure, then just hook, up, hook yourself up to a drug machine. Right. Well, most I would bet, and I think that it's not it's not just a. Uh, my own bet is there's plenty of, of empirical evidence that the majority of you know normally functioning human beings, I mean human beings who are whose brain is normally functioning, they would not think of that life as a life worth living. Right. Yes, it may be pleasurable on the on the moment, right? Um, but if you if that's all you do for all your life, you get to the end of it, and you, you have had no meaningful relationships with other people, no connections, no sense of purpose, no contribution to study. You really would be hard pressed and say, "Yeah, that was a good life." Also, I thought Schopenhauer zeroed in on the sort of, I guess this is the word I would use, the, the misery of pleasure, which is which yeah. is he. he <laughs> He said, you know, I go from desire to satisfaction right back to desire again. It's like it's never, it's never enough. It never goes away. It's, 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 it's fleeting, and then I'm back to that hunger again. 
That's right. And modern psychologists call that uh, the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. Right. So this idea that uh, you keep, yeah. Oh, it's, I got my new iPhone. That's so you're so excited, excited today. And then you know, a week later, it's just a phone. And then you know, a month later, it's like, oh yeah, I got that thing, and I need, I need another one. Yeah, it's, so, it's, our brain pushes everything into the background. Everything becomes familiar correct. eventually. Yeah. Correct. Now, interestingly, the Stoics came up with a number of exercises to, uh, as we would say in modern parlance, reset the hedonic treadmill. Um, and I actually do uh, some of these exercises on a regular basis because I find them very useful. Uh, these are basically exercises in, uh, self depri- in mild self-deprivation. So I'm talking about things like, for instance, uh, several times a week I take a, a cold shower. Uh, or if it's winter, I go out uh, in the cold without a, without a coat. Yep. Or I fast one, one or two days a week or something yep. like that. Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, these kind of things. Uh, what they do is, according to the, the story, did it for a number of reasons. But, but one of the reasons is, or one of the effects is, it does reset a little bit at least your hedonic treadmill, because as Seneca puts it very nicely in one of the letters that he wrote to his friend Lucilius, you know, I, I fasted for a couple of days, he says, and you couldn't believe when I got back home and I, had, I just had a soup and stale bread, and it was the most delicious meal that I've ever had. Right. That's the way our brain works, right? <laughs> exactly. It is. And the other reason to do it is, or another reason to do it, is because it's as an exercise in appreciation, right, um, in being thankful for these things. Because we do take for granted that we have the hot water for the shower every, every, one, every time we want to take a shower or that we have a meal every time we feel hungry or mm-hmm. that we have a coat when we go out in the winter, you know, that sort of stuff. But, of course, that's not, you know, a lot of people in the world, both today and uh, in earlier generations, did not have that sort of stuff. And it's something that we shouldn't take for granted. I was just talking to one of my neighbors. Uh, you know, I, I live in, in Manhattan and uh, in a co-op building. And uh, one of my neighbors just, just across from us, we were chatting this morning, and he said, oh, you wouldn't believe he's on the board of this co-op. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. You know, a few years ago, all of a sudden, the hot water was, was you know, went out, went out and, and it was Christmas Day. And you wouldn't believe the number of people that, that called me complaining that we have to fix it. We absolutely have to fix it. I can't possibly stay without, you know, hot water. And, and he tried to explain that, you know, in New York City on Christmas Day, <laughs> Nobody will come and fix your hot water. Just deal with it, dude. It's not the end of the world. Well, the, the most traumatic part of this, the, for me, the most traumatic yeah. part of the story is that you live in a co-op. So, yeah. so I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's got its ups and downs. We, yeah. I live in a condo out there, and that's bad enough. The co-op was out of the question. Oh, my God. So. Right. But, but the point is, it's interesting because, again, the stories also thought about this, that, it, that is, look, you're actually more resilient than you think. You can right. deal with That's the right. temporary lack of these kinds of things, you know, the comforts of everyday life. It's okay. You'll, you'll, you can survive this kind of thing. And, in fact, it's a good, a good idea that you do it on purpose from time to time because, you know what, one of these days, the hot water mindset, you know, well, go away on Christmas morning. You, well, but not do? only that, G- Gary here, who's our producer, has heard this. You've heard this cold water story many times, yes? Sure have. Uh, Adam Carolla <laughs> advocates that everyone should take a freezing shower or dump in a cold pool every day, and that right. even if you don't need right. to, it's a way of, of uh, toughening yourself, building grit, and maybe resetting the hedonic tone, as you're saying. 
So, yes. uh, in fact, as a biologist, I can tell you, I looked into this. It turns out this one obviously the Stoics didn't know, but it turns out that it also boosts your in- immune system. It makes sense. So, do, yeah, does there's it, a lot I, of reasons to do it. I, I'm trained as a biologist too, and, and does it bother you how poor the general public understanding is of biology? I mean, the stuff that's in the lay press and the way people <laughs> in authority talk about. Uh, who was I? I heard somebody talking the other day. I think it was Scott Adams, and I said, "Please, Scott, just to stop. Don't, 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 don't talk about this anymore. You don't, you don't understand biology." And very smart, particularly the engineers and the people that you know are used yeah. to a, a, a much more concrete, less probabilistic kind of world. They just don't understand biology. It, it drives me crazy. Yeah, it used to bother me much more than it does now. Since I started practicing stoicism, the, the, the approach there is, you know what? Um, other people's opinions are not up to you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and, so you, and what you have, well, the positive part of that is, uh, you know, so the stoics would say, look, either uh, explain it to them or put up with it. Yeah. So if you want to spend the time, you know, to call somebody up or to write with somebody and say, look, actually, you know, I'm an expert in this area and what you just wrote or said Think right. Here's the here's the right version. By all means, go ahead. Otherwise, just put up with it. Well, we Both have sort of a we have kind of a death of expertise in this country right now. So expertise is immediately looked at with skepticism, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and and then my point isn't that they're necessarily wrong. It's that the their whole of thinking, the way of thinking about biological systems, is so deeply flawed that that's what makes yeah. me sort of troubled. Is that this is not it's not a it's not a narrative. Biology is not a narrative. Yeah. And they, everyone wants to yeah. make it a narrative. And as soon as I hear a narrative, I thought, I go, stop, stop. Just don't even go. Just don't even, don't even talk to me. Well, that's true. But, you know, we are storytelling animals. I know. I know. I just, I'm yeah, sympathetic to why it happens. I just wish that they would understand that it doesn't apply <laughs> right. in biological systems. So if you'll permit right. me, I'm, I'm curious, uh, A, do you miss biology? Do you still do a lot of evolutionary thinking? And why did you leave evolutionary biology? Um, I do miss the, the lab work um, because the relationship with your graduate students, if you're a scientist, is very different uh, than the one you have with uh, as a philosopher. You know, as a philosopher with my graduate students, I, I see them once, you know, maybe a week or a couple of weeks over a glass of wine, and we talk about progress on the dissertation, which is not unpleasant. Well, I should say you. not. Sounds, sounds quite, <laughs> <laughs> quite idyllic. <laughs> right. But it's very different than being in the field with your graduate students or being in the lab every day, you know, yeah. you know shoulder to shoulder and trying try to solve problems. Crunching so numbers, I, I yeah. Miss. Yeah, the part I don't miss is the brand writing, you know, proposals, writings, and yeah. things like that, that, which was driving me crazy uh, uh, near the end of, the, of my career as a biologist. But I, do, I still do biology. I, I basically do... Uh, a mix of philosophy of science and theoretical biology, and and so I still go to biology conferences. I, pub- I publish in um, so theoret- more theoretical papers, and I and I am in contact with a lot of my colleagues. Especially there's this initiative that has um, been launched a few years ago called the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, uh, which is a uh, multidisciplinary attempt at sort of revising and updating evolutionary theory. And I, that was one of the things that I got interested in toward the end of my career as a biologist, and now I'm part of this you know, international consortium, basically, um, that does these, these kind of things. Well, tell us um, about it. I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's, it's called, uh, in fact, you can, you can check it out online. It's called, I think it's, the website is called EES Updates or something like that. Um, and uh, the, the standard evolutionary synthesis is basically this idea that the the modern version of evolutionary synthesis, which is referred to as the modern synthesis, uh, sorry, evolutionary theory, which is referred to as the modern synthesis, came out between the 1920s, was formulated between the 1920s and the 1940s. 
Uh, and it was spectacular. It updated, it managed to update the original Darwinism uh, and to incorporate, uh, you know, the birth of genetics, uh, you know, the discovery of Mendel's laws and things like that. Um, and eventually incorporated also the, the origin of sort of statistical genetics. But then pretty much the same basic theoretical framework has been used uh, in the 50s, 60s, and so on until today with little or no further update. And in the meantime, biologists, of course, have discovered a bunch of new phenomena and a bunch of new, uh, and they come up with a bunch of new interesting concepts, such as uh, phenotypic plasticity, for instance, the idea that um, uh, a single genotype can produce very different looking forms uh, in response to different environments, so that genotypes are inherently plastic. They, they, and, they do and, different things depending on the condition. Some of that's epigenetics, too, right? Correct. Epigenetic, uh, epigenetic inheritance is another one. Um, uh, something called niche construction, which is a concept that comes from ecology, uh, according to which a, a number of organisms basically inherit bits and pieces of their environment in a reliable way uh, so that they don't have to stuff everything from scratch every, every time. So there's some kind of extra genetic uh, and extra organismal inheritance. All of these things have come along from different Subdisciplines of biology, but they're not really being incorporated into a sort of some kind of unified, broadened version of evolutionary theory, and that's what we're trying to do now. Um, and we've been working on this for the last, you know, twenty years. This is an ongoing process. Have they and I think it's finally coming to fruition. Have they incorporated? This is something I've sort of ruminated about a little bit once in a while. Which is my sense is, I mean, obviously the the slow evolutionary phenomenology we we understand pretty well, but. I, I never hear them talking about sort of theoretical shakeups in the evolutionary uh, process. You know, a, a, a gamma ray hit or an asteroid hit or, or a right. you know some some massive penetration of actually the genome from extra biological forces that could just shake the right. box and create a whole new set of monsters. Some of which fill a niche and some of which form a species. I mean, but no one ever really gets to that, do they? Yeah, it's hard to get a, an empirical hold on, on that kind of stuff. Uh, Does anybody also, think about that? You know, Does anybody give the consideration of that? I mean, because yeah, it, it seems yeah, like they, they, are, they, certainly yeah. the paleontological record seems like there's some leaps here and there. It's like, well, maybe something happened. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I was mentioning, in fact, I was about to mention paleontology. So one of the, one of the issues, uh, one of the major differences between the modern synthesis of the 1920s and 40s uh, and the extended synthesis that we're, we're working on now is precisely a much bigger role of paleontology. Um, paleontology has become a you know a really sophisticated discipline. They've discovered a bunch of things about yeah. you know mass extinctions and uh, you know large scale dynamics of, of uh, populations in the past. Uh, all of this stuff has been so far described you know and sort of taken almost as a curiosity by the rest of biology. It's like, yeah, okay, there are mass extinctions. Well, what do you mean, okay, there are mass yeah. extinctions? You know, mass extinctions, you know, some mass extinctions basically meant that 90% of species uh, uh, existing at one point on, on planet Earth were wiped out. It just, it that just, it just to affect the dynamic. Right? And, and then, oh, by the way, around that time, the poles shifted in the planet. I wonder if that had something to do with it. Right. It's like, it's like right. what? Exactly. That sound, all that sounds extraplanetary. Like something, something hit us. So, so right. So there's a lot of stuff going on in your know, large scale effect of climate, uh, both in, as a result of you know uh, dramatic um, events such as you know an asteroid 
coming down, but also of you know fairly rapid geological cycles. All of that stuff has been known for some time in paleontology, but it really has not been incorporated in any kind of organic sense you know, sort of broader picture yeah. of, of evolutionary theory. So that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do now, and it, it, it's very exciting. There's a lot of people working on it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of laboratories across the world are working on this stuff. And there's, an, uh, there's now uh, a decent literature on it. There's a number of books that, that have come out uh, even recently uh, on this issue, and, of course, lots of technical papers. Uh, there's not much in the way of treatment for the general public, I must say. I know. Um, you know yeah. there, there are a few things here and there, but not not that much. Well, this this not sort yet, of the, the I, I consider you sort of part of the intellectual dark web in an interesting way, and I think that's sort of an evolving. <laughs> spe- you know, I, I mean, you're you're not you know like Sam Harris and all those guys, but but no. you but but you but you but you you satisfy you, you take a, you, I, people that are hungry for information are going to find you. I'm sure of it because I just I just. You know it when you hear it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I consider that all the intellectual dark web. And I'm imagining that's where this conversation will get expanded. But but you you said that the uh, the writing for um, for money was driving you crazy. Is is that the reason you left biology? The, the grant writing? No, it's, it, no, it's not. It was a midlife crisis right. uh, that really prompted me to it. And uh, what happened was that I was. Um, a tenured full professor at University of Tennessee at that point. Uh, and then, as you mentioned earlier, I moved to Stony Brook for five years, uh, still as a biologist. But I I started feeling like, uh, in, both in my career and sort of life more generally, I was beginning to coast, uh, you know, doing the same things because yeah. I was comfortable doing certain things. Yeah. And uh, that's not atypical. I mean, a lot of academics do get to that point and they start looking around for something different to do. What is atypical is that, um, in my case, instead of looking to a- other areas of biology or even other areas of evolutionary biology itself, I cast the eye across campus and I went to the philosophy department. Had you always had um, a sort of inclination that way, or is it just some impulse out of the blue? Um, it was both a combination of, of a long-standing interest and of serendipity. The long-standing interest is because I grew up in Italy where, in high school, you have to take three years of philosophy. Uh. And in my case, I was lucky enough that I had a wonderful uh, teacher, and she really made the subject uh, come alive. So ever since that point, I've always kept an eye on philosophy, uh, mostly philosophy of science, but, but even more broadly philosophy, you know, as, a, as my own little uh, sort of side readings. The serendipitous part was that when I was uh, during that period at the University of Tennessee, uh, UT uh, Knoxville um, hired a brilliant young philosopher of science, named Jonathan Kaplan, and uh, Jonathan had just defended his thesis at, um, at Stanford on gene-environment interactions, mm. which is what I was working on as a biologist, and sure enough, he had cited several of my papers, so he looked me up when he came to campus, and he said, you know, hi, I'm a philosopher, but, you know, I, I know your work, and I'd like to meet for coffee, and we did, and we, we hit it off very well, we became friends, we started collaborating started writing papers together, uh, mm. alternating between philosophy and, and biology journals. Mm. Wow. And one thing led to another. And uh, at some point, I, I remember uh, we were having lunch, and I said, Jonathan, so, I, you know, I've been looking for something different to do, so why, why, why not uh, going back to school? Uh, I'm going to get my PhD in philosophy, and you be my advisor. Oh. And, and he looked at me and was like, how many glasses of wine did you have? Uh, and I said, well, I don't usually drink at lunch. So, <laughs> so 
So we, we, you know, we explored the idea, and it was lots of fun. For, for three years, um, you know, even though he was a junior professor on tenure, he was my advisor. Uh, and uh, so for three years, I kept the lab going on the one hand during the day, and then in the evening, I would go across campus and take evening courses wow. in philosophy, and um, eventually you, I managed to defend. How did you land on, how, how'd you land on stoicism? Stoicism was another uh, combination of interest and serendipity. It happened a few years later. It was still part of this. So once you start studying philosophy, at a, especially at a graduate level, you cannot avoid uh, sort of asking yourself broader questions about you know, life, the universe, and everything. Uh, the first two courses that I took in graduate school in philosophy uh, were, were on ethics. The first one and the second was on Plato. Mm. So you just can't, you know... Get, get away with, we're doing that and not studying, asking your, yourself certain questions. Now, the kind of question that I was asking myself was like, okay, what, what kind of philosophy of life do I have anyway? Uh, I grew up Catholic, but I left the church in my teenage years, and ever since I considered myself a secular humanist. But then it, it increasingly, I increasingly felt uneasy with secular humanist, humanism because it, it felt increasingly like more like a laundry list of things that I liked and agreed with than, than a coherent philosophy. Uh, if, you, if you look up like the, the different versions of the Secular Humanist Manifesto, for instance, uh, that's what it reads like. It reads like a list of things. And sure enough, I checked the boxes and I agree with these things, but then I, I wonder, you know, why, why these things as opposed to others? What, what, what is it that brings them together? What's the, what's the underlying thread? So I was wondering about this stuff, and um, because I started reading Plato and then, you know, I was in graduate school in philosophy, it occurred to me that the right answer was going to be around the area of the, the ballpark of virtual ethics. Mm. And, you know, so when you start going there, the first thing you do, you read Aristotle, and which I did. And it's like, okay, this is interesting, but not quite, not quite what I'm looking for. Then I moved to Epicurus. Okay, this is interesting, but not what, what I'm looking for. And I was looking uh, until one day on my Twitter feed, I saw this thing that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, what the hell is Stoic Week and why would anybody want to celebrate it? Uh, But I was curious. As much as anything, I'm I'm amazed that your Stoic training is post-Twitter. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. So, you know, I knew that Stoicism was in the ballpark of virtual ethics as well, because I studied uh, Stoicism in, in high school, as I said, in you know, many, many years earlier. I actually, since uh, I also studied Latin, I actually translated Seneca uh, and Cicero. But I never made the connection that this could actually be a live philosophy that could be useful for somebody living in, you know, the 20th century and 21st century. So I started looking. I, I was curious. I, I signed up for Stoic Week, which is turns out to be an annual event uh, that is organized by a group of scholars and, and people who are interested in pr- practicing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Hmm. Um, and uh, I downloaded it. I studied philosophy, you know, stoicism, and I sort of exercise, did exercises as a stoic for a week. And I, at the end of the week, I said, you know, this is really interesting. It clicked. So I committed to do it for another couple of months until the end of the year. And then... Uh, it, it was pretty clear that this was making a, uh, an obvious difference for me on a day-to-day basis. You know, my friends started telling me that I looked much more calm and, you know, I wouldn't get upset much anymore. And I was looking at things in a different way. 
So mm-hmm. I said, huh, you know what? Let me commit to it for another year. And, and then now here we are several years later and still doing it. Fascinating. It certainly seems like a philosophy that has utility in our time, that's for sure. Hey, I, I have a crazy question. Your your website is Plato Footnote, right? And, yes. And it was Alfred North Whitehead that said that uh, all Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato, right? Right. And, That's right. and yet I don't experience you as a Platonic philosopher. You're, you're interested specifically in the footnotes, aren't you? <laughs> or the pre-Plato. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, yes, I think you're right. I'm interested more in the footnotes yeah. than, than in Plato himself. Yes, okay. I just want to make uh, sure well, I got yeah, that. I wasn't I, missing something. No, you're definitely not missing something. Uh, I picked that name because, yeah, that's, you're right, that's a, such a famous uh, phrase. And by the way, I, I was stunned that nobody had the, the domain name, uh, Plato Footnote. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, the idea I think that Wider was, in, was hinting on is that um, Plato, and of course Socrates, you know, the, the early Plato is basically more Socrates, yeah. Socratic, Socratic thinking. Yeah. Um, everybody came after that. I think it's obviously... Uh, much more than footnotes, but um, Plato and Socrates hit on all of the major themes that have characterized Western philosophy for the past, you know, almost two and a half millennia. What's and so if you're a philosopher, you eventually you're going to go there. Right, right. Not and because you agree with Plato, yeah. but because Plato wrote about it first. And One of the saddest things there. about today's world is we, we can't have Socratic anything because <laughs> any, no dialogue, yeah. no dialogues existed right now. It's all yeah. just outrage yeah. and, and yelling. Uh, that, to me, is the, the, the scariest thing. Here's the foundation of Western thought. We can't even gauge in it right now. But um, Well, I've got to wrap up. I could talk to you for another two hours. I, I would love to do another hour. I'm not kidding. I, I would love to do another hour with you on just philosophy of science, because that, to me, is a gigantic, gigantic and interesting zone. I've heard you speak on it before, and I, I may even have been the reason I ran and made sure you were bored <laughs> just to talk about that and even get to it. So, but uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with me and uh, sharing your thoughts. I hope everyone else gets as excited about Stoicism and philosophy generally, just hearing you talk. Wh- where would you like people to go now to find you? Because I know you're all over the place on podcast, but where would you like people to find you? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. Um, I also have a sort of an official Facebook page. And if you go with under my name and and if you go on either one of those, uh, you'll find my blogs, my podcasts, my books, my whatever it is that you want. That you want. Any, anything you're excited about right now? Anything you're like really, inter- you know, any, any pod you just did that, you know, was exemplary or? Yeah, for the last uh, three or four months, actually, I've been producing, uh, self-producing a, a, a mini podcast almost every day, basically, five times a week. It's called Stoic Meditations. And it started out because that's an exercise that I do every day. I'm In the morning, I read a quote and then I reflect on what it means. So I say, hey, if it's useful for me, why not for other people? And I'm astounded that so far it has almost 600,000 downloads. Great. Uh, so apparently people really do uh, dig this stuff. Great. And, and next time we'll talk about pseudoscience and creationism and philosophy of science. We'll get into all that stuff. So if, if you if you can like stom- stomach me for another hour, I'd appreciate someday getting, getting a hold of you for that. But uh, thank you Sounds again good. and uh, hope to talk to you very soon. It was a pleasure. Thank pleasure you. was mine. Massimo Pellucci, Pellucci, and uh, thank you all. We'll see you next time. Uh, Massimo, you still there? Yeah. Okay. So I really thank you so, so, so much. I'm really a big fan, obviously, and geeking oh, out. So. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Um, if you have at some point... 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or Dr. Drew.com.